Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 86 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. It's a beautiful day, and it's almost two weeks since I recorded episode 85. Episode 85 was tough. It was Molly's birthday, and and I was talking about a period of time where I made some horrifying decisions. They're decisions that brought me great joy at the time, some of them, and just compound my grief now. And sometimes I think that's life. I just did a podcast interview two actually, one on Monday and one on Tuesday of this week. Today's April 13th. Lucky 13th, Jack's due date. In both of those episodes, I talked about how my life is like Great Expectations, the Charles Dickens novel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I think it's Great Expectations. But I I seldom have a joy that doesn't have a tragedy connected to it or a tragedy that didn't bring joy or joy. I don't know. It's a common theme for me. My critics will tell me that I'm a drama hound and I'm always seeking drama. I certainly do find it. I think I attract it sometimes. So that was a hard episode for me, talking about the last week of Molly's life and not being here. And the other piece is, you know, in telling my story, when I started this podcast and wanted to talk about my life and my life story, as it related to Molly's death, my thousand tiny steps, I can either tell the story or not. And so I can either be honest or not. I can't just pick and choose the pieces I share. That's not fair. I have to be honest. And the problem with honesty is that sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't live in a bubble. I wasn't living all by myself. I was interacting with lots of different people in the years, months, weeks, days, minutes leading up to Molly's death. And so in telling my story, there are other characters involved. I have to be very careful because their story isn't mine to tell. And in telling my story, I don't want to necessarily hurt those people. And so of course I can't tell this story without really hurting Kenny. And I want to acknowledge that this is the balance where, where I think to myself, how do I navigate forward here? Kenny is the world's biggest optimist, and he, he always, always will look for the light side of any situation. He accepts apologies as sincere. He is very supportive and helpful, and he wants people to be supportive and helpful in his life. Certainly makes him an easy target for someone to boss around. And I see it, you know, I can be the world's biggest critic of him when I watch how he lets others take advantage of him. But I took advantage of him. And so in acknowledging that, it re-brings up old hurts. And, you know, I'm doing a clothing drive currently for the Molly B Foundation. And I think somebody was dropping off clothes, but somebody was listening to my podcast and they commented to me, I've been listening to the podcast. Kenny, I'm so sorry for you. And then shame on you, Barbara. And, you know, you're right. A lot of my, a lot of my actions and decisions were shameful, as were Roy's actions and decisions as were some of Kenny's actions and decisions. Seldom in these situations is anybody truly a victim in the sense of being completely perfect and innocent and oblivious to everything. We all play our parts. And in telling this story, I try very hard to own anything that I need to own. And if I am including actions that will hurt somebody or regaling or retelling a story that might make someone look bad, I try very hard to own the fact that I'm not pointing fingers. I'm including everyone (laughs) in my story. Kenny and I have had a hard few days. Knowing how Roy really sought to hate Kenny and make Kenny this hateful, disgusting thing in the years that we were, you know, together, 
he probably would get great joy out of the fact that Kenny and I were fighting. That's kind of how he functions. And I have to be honest, if I thought that he were was fighting with Amy or Bob or any of the people involved in our circle, I might feel okay about that too. It's like misery loves company kind of. But I do want to always, always start these episodes by acknowledging my piece in it and by explaining that I am not pointing fingers at all the monsters that hurt me. I am including all the monsters with whom I was involved. And sometimes I was the monster too. I sort of ended episode 85 with, with sort of death week and, you know, how I had completely cut off contact with Doug and how Roy and I were navigating, what do we do with this now? And I know for someone like Roy, he isn't an emotion feeler. He doesn't ever want to talk things through. He's not somebody who wants to, you know, after a big fight, sort of try to find some reconciliation and, and hash it out on an intellectual level. Once a fight is over, when he's decided he's done, he's done. We're not talking about this anymore. And he just functions like it never happened, which leaves one half of the duo powerless. And he was always the one that made this decision. I don't think I ever got the chance to say I'm done talking about it. Things were done being talked about when Roy decided. And so this piece of his nature and his personality was impossible in a situation like the death of a child. There's no black and white. You don't grieve for a set amount of time and then put it away and stop talking about it. But this is how Roy functioned. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail right now over the last sort of seven years of my life since her death. The time will come for those conversations. I do feel that I need to continue along through the true sort of breakup of Roy and I, the first actual breakup since 2009, when we first entered into a relationship. We had several, several fights and partings and periods of time where we didn't speak. But in terms of I'm done with you, the first sort of official done with me was very shortly after Molly died. So we got through death week and then came home. And I, as I said before, Roy came up and visited. He cried and cried. He had that, it was that beautiful visit that made me think there was a side to him I didn't know. Given what's gone on the last five years or the last seven years, I realize now that that was probably orchestrated. I don't know how sincere any of that truly was. If it was sincere, then I apologize, Roy, for doubting that it was. But based on the actions of Roy since then, I highly doubt that he truly feels that way. I think his tears are crocodile tears. I think they come when they sneak up on him and he has to quickly squelch them or when he knows they will produce a desired effect. That's what I think based on how he's treated me. I know some people listening might think otherwise, and you're absolutely allowed to feel otherwise. We only know what the people that we're with show us, right? So I'm quite sure some of the words uttered to me are words he would never think to utter to a next door neighbor, for example, or a friend group in whatever social circle he's in. He would never want to show that side of him to those that he was hoping to maintain a positive outlook. In the first week of May, 2016, I was a disastrous, devastated mess. We came home and the next day was Mother's Day. I talked about this. Roy would never wish me a happy Mother's Day. And he would say it was because I wasn't his mother, but I was a mother. I wasn't Kenny's mother. And he always got Father's Day stuff for me and Father's Day stuff for me from the girls. I always wished Roy a happy Father's Day because he would complain that his children didn't. So I thought for sure this time around, Roy might be tender about Mother's Day. 
And I don't think I heard from him at all that day. I'd really have to go back and look through all those text messages. It's painful for me to do that. But the next two weeks, so May 7th, which was Unplugged Day, to May 23rd, which was Molly B. the Musical, so 16 days, those days were hours and hours and hours of me, primarily me, gathering pictures and working with the funeral home and planning a graveside service, all of the things that go into dealing with a dead child. Roy was very supportive of this and of giving me space. I also don't think he quite knew what to do. I think that in deference to him, he is a human being. I I do think he has feelings to some extent, and I think all of this was devastating to him. Not that Molly was dead, but more like what Molly's death now meant for the day-to-day life of Roy. That became more clear a bit later. I would text with him and talk to him, let him know how the day went. I was a basket case. We had exactly four days to plan a graveside service. That was Wednesday the 11th. So my communications with Roy during that time were sort of keeping him up on things, checking in with how I'm doing, how's Gracie, wanting to know was I okay. He was not at all concerned with Kenny. He maintained his hatred of Kenny. He just thought Kenny would pull me down. I don't know. You know what? I don't know what he thought. I can't speak to what Roy was thinking because I don't live inside his head. We got through the, the May 11th, and I know that Roy and I met two or three times for lunch. I do know that I don't think I ever went back to his apartment, the one he lived in at the time after Molly's death. I think I never went there again. We met for lunch several times. I was shell-shocked. I can remember him looking at me and just looking at me. Didn't want to shower. My hair was a mess. I, I was a disaster. I, I had to, you know, we came home from Amsterdam, and I was, I was happy. I'd had a good time. There's a picture of me. I think I've included it in a blog post and I'm sitting in a big jet engine that's in the airport. I have this biggest smile on my face. I'm so happy. And it was just the best picture. And during this time, Roy put it on his Facebook page and he said a picture of Barb before her life blew up. He was very willing to share. Now we had been together and there was tons of stuff on his Facebook page about me. I was a huge piece of his life. One of my big regrets is that I didn't go back and save all those through all the years and screenshot everything because he, he deleted it. He was very, very supportive in that way. He checked in with me. 444 is, I consider it my angel number. And I actually came to know that number initially through him. He saw the number 444. And right around that time, you know, I remember telling Gracie and Molly about the number as well. We were both seeing them all the time. And so anytime he saw a 444, he'd put it on his Facebook page and say, hi, Molly. And it was just unbelievably helpful to me because as I said, I functioned in such a level of fear over losing him abject, utter fear. I'm going through all of this now with Gracie and Kenny about losing Molly. I don't know what to do. I realize now, however, that the three of us have to bind together. We have to, we have to be together in this. I knew based on the treatment of Molly that there would likely be litigation. I didn't give a rat's ass, quite frankly, what any attorney thought of me or what people thought. I was beyond that. I'd suffered enough humiliation at the hands of Amy and Bob And now that I really think back on it, likely Roy, I think that they knew all the details because he, he would brag about me helping him. The 444s came up all the time. And so when he would, when he would be inclusive, when he, when I would look on his page and see a random post that was about me or about Molly, I had such relief in my heart, like, okay, okay, okay. He's not leaving. He's not leaving. Roy came to Molly Be the Musical and he brought his daughters with him. He brought Morgan and Teresa. And they dressed up in these beautiful shirts that his friend Alicia painted. I have one still, this beautiful ballet shirt. Roy wore this beautiful suit in this beautiful pink tie with a handkerchief. Like 
he just went all out like he does. He, he looked stunning and they, and, and it was a big deal and he came up and I know he sat up in the balcony and he made a big post on his page about how much he loved me because I got up and talked in front of everybody and what a good job I did and how I made everyone laugh. I remember a few days after that, he changed the word love to light. He started going through, thinking ahead now, getting ready for his big exit before we had discussed it and sort of took me off his page as a lover and tried to keep me on there as a friend. After Molly B. the Musical, we saw each other again a few times. Again, we'd meet for lunch. We'd walk around somewhere. We'd sit on a bench and hold hands. And it got to the point where he finally said, I can't do this anymore. And this was probably early June. I was just now getting into the process of the legal, the legal piece. And so I was sharing all this with Roy. It was a very intense time for me. And the support that Roy had provided in my life for the prior seven years, I needed more than ever. Kenny was, had lost a child. He was, he was a mess. You know, he was sick. His health was failing. And, you know, here we are. Here we are now with a dead child and worrying so much about Gracie. Gracie at the time was in complete denial and was just enjoying all the attention. She was loving the friends that came over. She was not alone or friendless for the remainder of that school year. Every day, somebody's mom and dad let their child skip school and come and hang out with Gracie. So she was okay. And I was busy, busy writing obituaries and, you know, answering interview questions and putting pictures together for the big slideshow at the end of Molly B. the Musical. I remember how painful it was to look at those pictures. I remember sitting at the kitchen table and just screaming, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I didn't drink. We didn't drink a drop of alcohol the whole week at the hospital. But once we came home, Kenny and I went right back to our our evening drinks. Doug was invisible through most of this. I quit my job. I just never went back. I didn't even say anything. I just never went back. The school year finished without me and that program finished. And I had completely, I was so furious with him over that phone call to Roy when we were leaving for our trip that I, I was done. I had just blocked him from everything. So he knew nothing about what was going on. And being a pretty emotionally unstable person, he had a rough few weeks. Amsterdam was a rough week for him. The whole week Molly was on life support. He didn't know what was going on. And then all the weeks leading up to, you know, the, those next two weeks leading up to the, the memorial service. At one point, I did go over to visit, to check in with him. I let him know. I sort of unblocked him and checked in. I'm home. I actually refriended him on Facebook so that he could just see all of what was going on with Molly. I had to tread lightly here because I didn't want to send a message to Doug that I was anything but a distraught former friend and former worker. But I didn't want to make Roy angry because I knew if Roy saw me friending him on Facebook, he would immediately think that there was something going on. But I did go over to see Doug. And this is not the time for me to discuss all of that. But that piece of the next seven years was, or the next five years really was profoundly unhealthy and bad. But I was able to keep him at a distance. Doug came to Molly B. the Musical, but couldn't stay. Or so he says, I don't know. I didn't see him there. The whole town came. A thousand people came. As May went into June, there were a couple of visits that Roy came right up to Concord. And he would park at White's Park or, or we would meet at the park. Kenny and I had that apartment still, but little Kenny, Kenny's son was living in it. We were just home. We had just spent the month at home. I didn't think that we should go back to the apartment piece because I just felt like Gracie needed both parents all the time. I was so worried about Gracie and so wanting to keep her day-to-day life somehow stable and similar so she recognized where she lived. So one of the visits that Roy came up, we walked all around. And this, looking back on it now, I see it so differently. But the reason we 
we met at the park was so that we wouldn't be parking his car or my car here at the house so that if Kenny were to drive home, here we were. I just felt like it wasn't fair to Kenny. I had gone to Amsterdam. That was a pretty clear message of where, where I stood in our marriage. Kenny was a distraught mess over that and spent the whole week just hurting and sobbing and crying. And again, I think sometimes that would frustrate me. Like, this isn't new news, Kenny. You know, this is our marriage has been tanked for months and months. This was in 2016. But again, he was just an optimist. He just wanted things to be okay. I think it's one of the reasons he got into such financial trouble. He would just decide everything was okay, live as if it were. You know, and things weren't okay. It's fun to be in denial, I guess. You can put on a happy face for a few hours, but when your whole life becomes one of denial, then the truth, the reintroduction of the same truth, hurts as if it's new. And that's the best way I can describe all of these Roy memories with Kenny. I think they're just very difficult for him. Roy came up and we had a Conquer visit. And we, I think we went out to eat. We might have had a drink or two. When we went back to White's Park and we were just sitting in the park and I said, okay, well, I do need to go. And he was insistent that he walk me up here, that he walk me home. And I just was thinking, you know, no. So he walked to the top of the hill and I'm, I'm recording in a bedroom and I can see exactly where he walked me to. We continued and we're standing right across the street from our house and we're hugging and he was still so in love with me at the time. But this was a time that he was like over showing the love, just being super affectionate and holding my face in his hands. and looking at me, I could probably could count on, on two hands the number of times he really looked at me with that much love and adoration. And we were kissing and, and saying goodbye. And Kenny drove right by and drove into the driveway and got out of the Jeep. So here I am hugging Roy across the street from the house. And there's Kenny. So Kenny knows it's not like this relationship is a secret, but it's not something he needs to see with his own eyes. Roy has like a look of sort of satisfaction on his face like he had some sort of success here. It was, pretty, it was pretty horrifying for me. I pulled back and we said our goodbyes and Roy walked back down, back to the park and I came in. And Kenny and I had probably one of the ugliest fights post Molly's death that we've ever had. He yelled so hard, his eyes got all red. We screamed and screamed and screamed. The neighbors, the neighbors called to make sure we were okay. It was, it was just, he just went nuts. And I don't, I don't blame him, I can't blame him. It, was, it had to be an, a horrible thing for him to see. And it wasn't long after that when Roy really started pushing, pushing, pushing that I need to kick that loser out of my house. Those were his words. I'm like, well, that loser just lost a child. Molly was his daughter, Roy. I can't just ask him to leave the home that he's lived in with her and with Gracie. Roy would put me on the spot a lot. Well, where, where do we stand? And, and I said, I feel the same way about you. I still love you. I don't, I don't know, but I don't know what to do with this. I can't leave. I can't leave Gracie and Kenny and come down and live with you. I can't pull Gracie out of where she lives. Gracie can't stand you. You scared the crap out of her. The last time she saw you, you were like screaming and yelling at her and me and, you know, your daughter on the phone. Like, you know, I, I would just explain these to things and he didn't want to hear that. Well, that's your fault. Well, so now I would say it was five weeks after Molly's death that these conversations started to ramp up that I had to make a decision. Well, there was no decision to make. I couldn't leave Gracie and Kenny. We were three individuals living in a shared home. That's what we were. Whatever we were before Molly's death didn't exist anymore. We were nothing. We were hollow shells. As a little girl, the Vietnam War was going on when I was 10, and some of the newspaper pictures just showed people with expressionless faces, utter terror-stricken expressionless faces. And I used to stare at those pictures. And that's the best way for me to describe how we all felt. Roy didn't feel that way. And he didn't have a relationship with Molly. I'm not saying he should have felt that way. But he just expected that I could put it in a box like he would. 
and move on from it. So the, the sort of last big conversation we had on the phone before things started to really unravel was that one. I sat at the foot of my driveway looking at Gracie and Kenny sitting in the yard and I'm sobbing on the phone. Roy, you can't put me in this position. I'm doing the best I can. I can't just kick them out. And so finally it got to the point where I just said, look, if you have to leave and you need some space, I understand. So once it got to that point, it wasn't space that he needed. What he needed was a girlfriend. And it was more important for him to have somebody he could put on his Facebook page and travel around with and have fun with and live some happy life with. And I had a dead child. I was no longer able to be that girlfriend. If I had chosen to stay with Roy, I would have had to be that girlfriend. I would have had to put dead Molly in a box, literally like I already did and figuratively, and live a Facebook-worthy life that he could, he could show the world that we were a couple and that we were somehow okay. It wasn't about helping me at all. I don't think he knew how to help me, nor did he want to help me. What he wanted was for me to do what he said. He wanted to come up here. He wanted to clean out my house. There are still things in this house that are right where Molly put them. That's child loss. That's grief and trauma. That's any traumatic loss. Most people I know in all of my support groups online around child loss and trauma and death do not box up everything. Some people do. It's easier for them to put it all away. But at any rate, it's, it's no one's journey to live someone else's journey. And so Roy really, really just wanted me to do what he said. He wanted to come up here. He wanted to clean the house. And I think he wanted me to sell the house. You don't need that house anyway. This is the perfect time to sell it. And come live with me. And you know, I couldn't, I couldn't pull up Gracie from all that she knew. That would have been horrifyingly wrong for her. Now, I, I can also understand. I have to be honest here. I'm not saying that I didn't understand Roy's point of view. But the way that he went about it, showed me that he, he didn't have my best interest at heart ever. And that the vacation was just a way for him to look at Doug and Kenny and say, ha, huh, she picked me. She came with me. As June ended, Roy started actively going on match. And he, he said, look, we have to stop being Facebook friends. And I'm like, you can't, no, 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 you can't like take me away. You know, there are many ways he could have made me an invisible friend on Facebook. We could have still seen each other's pages and such. He didn't have to delete me. But he did utterly deleted everything. It's like I never existed. So initially he didn't. I remember him telling me, okay, I had a match. I met this woman. We talked on the phone. And he goes, this is why I'm going to have to delete you. I told her about you. I told her about the vacation. She thinks it's too soon and she doesn't want to go out with me. And she would have been a perfect match. And so my thoughts were, all she said was, is it's too soon. So reconnect with her in three months. Give yourself time to heal from this. Move on. I didn't really want to be saying these things, but I wanted him to be happy. I really did want him to be happy. But that was it. He blamed the fact that he was honest. Now, honesty is a huge thing with Roy. He calls me a pathetic liar all the time. One of our last conversations two years ago was, you know, even Amy thinks you're a compulsive liar. You know, okay, team up with Amy who, you know, Amy and criticize Barb. That makes great sense. So he decided that he had to remove me from his reality and that if he was going to meet anybody, he could not tell them that I was on the, on the vacation, that I had to just be invisible from his life. So now I sort of point out to him, so you have to lie to have a girlfriend. Maybe you shouldn't have a girlfriend. If you really want to find your true love, you have to be honest. You can't just erase me. But people that have narcissistic tendencies do just that. They create a reality that describes them, that fits what they want the next person to believe. And Roy had to present to the next person a believable version of himself. And I couldn't be in it, nor could dead Molly be in it, nor could any of it be in it. 
he has a second interest. In the second interest, I'm going to call her Carrie. And Carrie was, quite frankly, in terms of what Roy would tell me he wanted in a woman, nothing at all that he wanted. But she was was willing to meet him. She had a thick, thick, thick Boston accent. And he couldn't he couldn't stand that accent. And he had a, he had another girlfriend years ago named Laura before he came back after the restraining order. And she had a thick Boston accent. And he said it made it really hard sometimes to like take her seriously. And that's that's one of those little prejudices against the hardcore Boston accent. It's hard to feel like I'm educated with this hardcore accent. And so she had this thick accent. It's one of the first things he told me about her. And he told me about her, sent me a couple of photos of her. And I just said, why are you doing this? Are you sure you want to date someone that you don't think is right for you? Like, it's not fair to her. He decided yes. And I was now, I remember scrolling his Facebook page and I didn't even, there was nothing of me on there. And I'm like, please tell me that you just hid those posts, that you just hid them. You don't have to delete them. You can hide them. And he goes, nope, they're gone. He deleted his whole Amsterdam post because he has to create one that doesn't include me in it. And, and I just, I don't know. I just, I just, anyone that can absolutely erase the vacation we had six weeks after we had it. Now it tells me that that wasn't what the vacation was for him at all. It can't be, or he couldn't have erased it. You just don't, you might put it in a box, but you don't set fire to it. Right around this time, it's now it's July and we have sort of a last lunch before I go off to Gracie's dance competition in Providence. And it's a beautiful lunch. And he gives me this gorgeous painting, a beautiful, beautiful painting of Molly that was done on a photograph from her. We meet at this pizza place in Manchester and we have this amazing lunch and we cry and we hold each other and I hug him. And he's decided now that we're broken up. Our sort of real breakup conversation, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, we sat in front of my CrossFit gym. His car was down there and we had gone for a ride. And it was like his last ditch effort for me to just kick Kenny out. And I just sat in my car and said, look, I'm sorry, Roy, I can't. I can't kick Kenny out. This is what it is. I can't disrupt Gracie's day-to-day life. Right now, this is where I have to live. This is who I have to be. And if you have to leave me, then leave me. And the only reason I had the strength to say that is because Gracie isn't always will be more important to me than anyone else. I mean, I have Jack-Jack now, so you know. But I couldn't fathom leaving. We had this lunch. He gave me this beautiful painting, wanted me to have it. And we stood in the parking lot. And I just said, I just love you so much. I don't want you to be with anybody else. I want you to be with me. And, and he held my face in his hands. And I saw that look of love. And I'll never forget it. Because I just felt at that time, I had those feelings for him. I, I needed something in my life to not disappear. Because everything else had. And he caught himself. No, no, I'm not going to go back there. And we got in our cars and drove away. But we got right on the phone and talked with each other. We talked for like his whole drive home. Two days later, now it's mid-July, July 13th, I drive to Providence and I'm staying at this big convention center and there's this thing going on there, this human body exhibit, and that's where the dance competition was. And we go out for dinner, a whole group of dance moms, we go to the melting pot. And I talked about that Valentine's Day that Roy and I went to the melting pot and how we promised each other and swore that that would always be our restaurant. So I texted Roy from the melting pot and we texted back and forth. Remember how romantic it was? We relived our whole Valentine's Day dinner. And I said, it's hard to be here. You know, it's not romantic. And here's what I'm eating. And we just talked all about it. And then I explained where I was. We texted fairly consistently that whole trip. I kept seeing billboards and street signs and license plates with 444. So I would text them to him. Saturday night, the 16th, he said, all right, tonight's my date night. And so I wished him good luck, you know, good luck. And I hope it goes well and all this kind of stuff. 200 Concord Dance Academy people are wearing their hashtag heart Molly B shirts. And we're in this big mall and there are all these restaurants attached to the mall and the mall is attached to a convention center. 
And we had to go through the mall to the other side, and we all went out to eat at P.F. Chang's. But on the way to P.F. Chang's is the melting pot where we had eaten. And we're all wearing Molly B shirts. And so it wasn't this night, but little did I know at the time that Roy had set up a dinner date with his new date, Carrie, at this restaurant, at the Melting Pot in Providence, where I was. I can't wrap my head around how orchestrated that was. He claimed at the time that, you know, that's crap. Those text messages between you and me were two weeks prior or a week prior. I texted him that day. He was driving down. The last time I texted, he said, I can't talk anymore. I'm driving. He'd already made the plans. They stayed overnight. Apparently, they had separate hotel rooms. I don't know. But they had this date in Providence, right where I was. So he took her to dinner at the melting pot, which is where I'd been, which is our Valentine's. And then they stayed overnight, you know, maybe a block from where I was staying. I can't wrap my head around why might this have happened? Did he want to see me or did he not want to see me? But he wanted me to know that this is how over me he was because he brought his new date, a first date to the very restaurant that we had decided was ours when he knew I was right there. It was a couple of days later that he texted me, where were you? Or maybe he, he might've even texted me from the date. Where are you? And I'm like, I'm at PF Chang's. I'm, you know, in Providence, you know, but the back and forth was that he claims that he would never have brought Carrie there if he knew I was still there. And that he saw these, all these people come in with Molly B shirts asking where PF Chang's was. And a couple of people came in to use the bathroom and another family actually maybe had dinner there. And now he was in this utter panic that I was going to show up there. And he was there with his new date, his first date. My speculation is that he was hoping I would come in there. Why else would you choose to bring a first date? Now, looking back on it, and after having read the book Power and read The Body Keeps the Score, and looking at the actions and decisions that people make when they live in a state of trauma, all of this is clear to me and makes sense to me. As I go along in the final years of my connection to Roy, there are two or three other instances that are just like this. Now I'm to the point, I'm removed enough from how I feel about him that I can kind of chuckle at it. But at the time I was just devastated. I cried and cried and cried because he brought this new person, this first date to a restaurant that was supposed to be our romantic restaurant. And she knew nothing about me. He brought her to where I was and she didn't even know I existed. I still don't know if she knows I exist. If she does, I'm quite sure Roy has created a version of me that doesn't include the reality of who we were and our last, those eight days in Amsterdam and all of the things, the professions of true love that we shared and that he told me best vacation of my life, insisting that I go. It hurts me. It's hard for me not to cry about it now, but I think mostly I get angry because I feel like a sucker. Oh, there's a sucker born every minute. I think I need to like, recorded, record that song. <laughs> As the summer went along, after that episode, I pulled back quite a bit. Roy's friend, Wendy, who had also lost a daughter, Haley, she came up to New Hampshire to visit. Roy really cultivated this friendship and wanted us to be friends. And she did not at all understand why Roy was seeing Carrie. It didn't make sense to her. She didn't understand why he had apparently been really helpful to her, hours and hours of listening to her talk and cry about Haley and being this major support for her. And he wasn't at all for me, zero. And she couldn't wrap her head around it. But again, people with narcissistic tendencies have different roles for people. His role in Wendy's life was to be her savior, to be this hero so that she would always choose his side, right? And that was sort of how it was leading up to Wendy and I both having lost children, dead daughters. She gave me a lot of hell for leading him on. And she just believed 
his version of me. And so now Wendy and I started to sort of cultivate our own friendship. And that became a bit trickier as far as Roy was concerned, because she really didn't understand how he could just suddenly jump into a relationship with someone else. She came up to visit. And so now she meets Kenny and she sees that there is a dynamic, a family dynamic here. She and Kenny really hit it off. She worried about how much he drank and how much we drank. But I mean, we were all drinking at the time. Wendy actually met Doug and absolutely saw how Roy's version of Doug and I was completely not the friendship that Doug and I had, that it wasn't that way at all. Several times she apologized for just believing Roy's version of things, but Roy needed it to be a certain way so his needs would be met. And I'm not saying that I didn't create realities like that either. When you're living a double life, absolutely. But I didn't recruit 15 of my closest friends and create this scenario for them to believe. I didn't tell anyone anything. I kept a lot of my Roy feelings to myself over the years. July and August went along. I went to Princeton camp. I remember texting Roy from Princeton camp. And he goes, does Kenny know that you're texting me? I'm like, Kenny's not here. I went to Princeton camp by myself. And he goes, oh, I just thought, you know, you're all one big happy family. And I'm like, I'm not one big happy family. He couldn't let go of what he decided. He decided I chose Kenny over him. I chose Gracie over him. I chose making sure my child, my second child, my only other child at the time didn't also die because she couldn't deal with Molly's death. I had to follow through on her and meet her needs. And, and Roy terrified her. She hated him for taking me away. And I think a part of her blamed Molly's death on me a bit because I wasn't there to advocate better for her. So there was never going to be that type of relationship with Roy. And really, quite honestly, if Molly hadn't died, I really believe that I, I wouldn't have committed to Roy until Gracie and Molly were out of high school because I wasn't going to up and leave and disrupt the family dynamic. I think that Kenny and I probably would have separated, but I'm not quite sure even with a separation, actually truly publicly dating Roy, how that relationship would have gone. Because as I said before, anytime I really got to a point where I was making myself available for him was a time that he decided to end it and cause trouble. And suddenly there was a new person in his life. So I don't know that he really wanted me in his life. And again, based on some of his last communications with me, which Roy do I believe? What version of his words do I believe? Because he, he spoke very different things. 2017 became a year of incredibly intense alcoholism and drug use for me. And I spent most of my time as unaware as possible of reality so that I didn't have to think about anything. And so Roy and I could now go weeks and months without, well, weeks, I'd say, days and weeks without really speaking to each other. His posts on Facebook. So I remember once Roy decided, you know, he knew I loved the beach and he's like, well, I'm never going to sit out in the sun. It's not what I do. You know, I'm not going to do that. And one of the first things he did was go on a cruise. Now, we always talked about how much we hated cruises. And he went on a cruise with his new girlfriend. The picture he posts on Facebook and one that he keeps on his Facebook is him sitting in a lawn chair, all sunburned with sunglasses on, big, giant, happy smile on his face. It was September 7th exactly four months after Molly's death, you know, 16 weeks, big smile. And he's, and he's on a cruise sitting out in the sun, getting a sunburn. There were pictures on the beach. I always wanted Roy to go to the beach with me. And anytime he gave me a beach day, it was more like a gazebo by the beach or a park near the ocean in a bay. You know, the one beach day he really took me on, we didn't even go to a beach. It wasn't until the day was almost over that he took me to singing beach and he went off and took pictures. He didn't even sit with me or enjoy the beach with me. One of the first times Roy and I were together physically in the attic here in Concord at his, at his home, we talked about favorite music, favorite bands, and what was your first album? And Sticks, The Grand Illusion, was our first album. We just, he said it was his first album. It was my first album. 
And we talked about it. We talked about all the songs and how much we loved it and how much we loved Sticks. Roy would never listen to music. In all the time that we were together, we would, he would never listen to it in the car. Music was not a piece of our relationship whatsoever. And he was anti-music. He didn't want to listen to music in the car. One of the next things he posts in his new relationship was he and Carrie going to a Styx concert, a concert. The number of times I wanted him to come to concerts with me, and he just flat out refused. Having really researched and read the behaviors of people with narcissistic tendencies, when they've moved on from one and they go to the next, they do things that they knew the other one liked. And whether it mean-spirited or survival mode, I know that people with narcissistic personality disorder typically had some sort of unresolved issue or trauma in their lives or were raised by a narcissist. So they were treated poorly that way. But these behaviors are consistent. And when I really look at the relationships in Roy's life that he told me before him, I see all those patterns. I see it now. In my conversations with some of the people he's been involved with since Molly's death and since like in the last couple of years and trying to put together a story for a book and for this podcast, the versions of me given to the other women in his life are nothing. They don't even closely resemble who we were. So I get it now. It's like now that I see it for what it is, I can see it much more clearly. As 2016 came to a close and 2017 unfolded, I was now fully involved in a lawsuit. I was really heavily involved in medications and drugs and alcohol. I had no job at all right now. We were still living off the kindness of all the, all the money fundraised for us. We had gone to Hawaii. Kenny and Gracie and I had gone for two weeks to Hawaii. You know, we had driven to Florida over Christmas, rainy, cold Florida for us. We were trying so hard, so hard to be okay. And we just were not okay. We were not okay at all. During this time, Roy was just continuing this relationship. I remember actually we had a phone conversation, words, and I had noticed that she had made it Facebook official, like maybe two or three months into the relationship. And I'm like, Roy, you're going to make it Facebook official? He goes, well, you know, I kind of have to now. And, and we talked about him telling her he loved her. And I'm like, well, you can't tell someone you love them if you don't. He said, well, I don't really have a choice. Like if that's where the relationship has to go, then that's what I have to say. This is when you want to, you know, as the jilted lover, as the one who, who wants the Roy that she used to know back, I wanted to call Carrie on the phone and say, I hope you know this, but it wasn't my place to do so. And they had to, you know, Roy had to go through his life and he, and he had to go in that relationship. They started the love word and, and I would go on Facebook and see that he was in love with somebody else. It wasn't easy for me, but I was also completely caught up in still bleeding profusely from the wounds of Molly's death hardly able to function, having this baby dream and trying to process that, trying to keep Gracie stable. You know, she didn't, she couldn't finish a day of school for the most part. We're still sleeping on the floor. I'm going for long drives at night because I can't sleep. And I have these panicking nightmares that Molly's lost. I have to go look for her. I mean, I was just a mess, just a disastrous mess. And Roy is living a life as if I never even existed, like happy, happy, go lucky. We still communicated. We still texted and talked on the phone, not regularly. If too long went by, if, if a long enough period of time went by, one of us would reach out. We also a couple of times got together. We would meet halfway and meet at a restaurant and have lunch. He had moved into a new bigger apartment. And so I went down one day to see it, looked at it, and we spent the day together. We had a very strong connection. And I do believe that had I shown up with suitcases, that he might have kept me there. I like to hope and think that he really meant those words. I don't know. But he was fully involved in this relationship, although we still spent some significant time together. 
when it was the one year anniversary of Molly's death, I remember driving around in the car with Kenny and Roy and I were Facebook messaging and, and he's like, this is where we were a year ago. And I'm like, yep. And he goes, do you want to forget about it? Or would it be helpful to go through each, each day? Every day I would open my Facebook messenger and there was some pictures and some memories from that day. This is what we did on this day. This is what we did on this day. It was a beautiful, kind gesture, I felt. We, we got to relive what was good about that week, you know, leading up to the horrible reality that Molly died. That was super helpful to me. Those actions, I would like to think he did because he loved me. What I know now and what he has shown me now, I don't know. I don't know if that was just still him wanting to know that he still had me, should he decide someday that I was somebody he wanted. I would love, love, love the opportunity to hear his side to all this. I don't think he'll ever share it. I think he has to hold fast to the story that he's given to his family and to everybody else. I don't do this podcast to hurt Roy at all. I know that my words could be hurtful, just like they've hurt Kenny. But I would love to have, you know, I can talk to Kenny. Kenny's willing to to put the anger aside and discuss it and talk about it and process it through so we can move along from it. When people ask me, why did I continue to talk to Roy? I don't let go of people. I'm not that kind of person. I don't cut people off and make believe they didn't exist. I still talk to many people in my life, as does Roy. He has lots and lots of former relationships that still talk to him and that he still talks to. But I think in his mind, there's still potentials, like there's still room for a relationship there, or he has them in some sort of manageable way. And I'm not an easily confined person. I don't like being told what to do. One of the biggest reasons Roy and I fought over the years is I didn't, when he told me to stop talking, it wasn't his job to tell me to stop talking. And so we would fight and they could get ugly. The fights could get ugly. As 2017 processed along, the lawsuit began to ramp up. I started working a little bit. I started tutoring at the state hospital. And I remember what I liked about it was the door locked behind me (laughs) and I felt safe with the other crazy people. I started to sort of piece together a little bit of work. You know, the first year of of Molly's death, we went to Disney and that was the first time any of us had ever been to Disney World. And it was a wonderful vacation. And it was something that Molly had never done, sort of like Hawaii. So we could enjoy it in a different way because she wasn't missing from the equation of being there. It wasn't like, oh, last time we were here, Molly was here. Yes, we of course we missed Molly, but we were in a place that didn't include her in the memory of it. And so it was an easier place to be. The lawsuit was really ramping up. And I shared all of that with Roy. I would, I would text him and call him and talk to him on the phone. We would meet for lunches a lot to talk about the lawsuit. I wasn't sure if he would need to be deposed in it. When you're in a lawsuit, the two sides can, you know, Facebook is public information. Because there was a lawsuit, those attorneys were allowed to read every Facebook messenger message I ever sent. So they got to read all the, the down and dirties of, of my entire life. And that becomes, that becomes a hospital's weapon. Let's make the mom look really bad. And so... If, you know, Roy's name would come up. Doug's name came up sometimes. You know, Kenny's and my marital troubles came up because those were all things that were in messages to people that you think are private. And so I would share those things with Roy. I remember in the fall of 2017, I went on a, on like an educational trip to DC. And sometimes Gracie would find my phone and look at things. And other times, you know, if she wanted to look at pictures or things like this, I sometimes would go in and block Roy, so that if he texted me when she was looking at my phone, she wouldn't see it. It wasn't that I was trying to be secretive. It was more like I didn't want a text to come through from him. It would come through while she was holding my phone. And I know that I had sort of, I was working a bit for Doug because I think in his guilt and his remorse around his role in Molly's death and all the time he took me away from her, 
his piece in this was he very much wanted to have, to have a friendship. Please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How can I make it up to you? And he spent a lot of time just, I guess, getting me drunk mostly, but trying to make me feel better and offering me whatever job I could manage. If you can manage this, that would be great. If you can manage this, that would be great. Those things were sort of going along. So did I still have this sort of crazy triangle of Kenny, Doug, and Roy? I did, but but there was no big involvement with anybody because I was dementedly sad and crazy. I remember when Roy and Carrie had their one-year anniversary, and that was sort of a big Facebook thing, and, and it was all these I love yous, and I hope we're together forever. And and I just still remember thinking, like, you know, he just he just creates the charade. Like, I wonder if he created a charade for me. I didn't see that so much then. I do now. Now that it's been two years since I've spoken with him, almost two years coming up on it, now I wonder how much of what he told me was true. He told her he loved her, and I know that he didn't. Did he not love me? Did he lie to me? These are things that the years after Molly's death have allowed me to ponder and increase my self-hatred because I lost so much by believing people that I shouldn't have believed, by getting sucked into a very, very dysfunctional couple and really putting them first so many times, right up until Molly's death. And so so I'll stop here because getting into the fall of 2017, you know, Molly's been gone a year and a half now. The lawsuit is really ramping up and my alcoholism is sometimes a bit out of control and my drug use is pondering on scary, scary, scary grounds. I want to share about that. I have to, I have to really think through how I can share that information safely. I know I leave myself wide open for criticism here. I'm admitting to an extramarital affair. You know, somebody said shame on you to me in my yard, to my face. Is that a bad thing? No, people need to feel how they feel. But I do know that I open myself up for criticism, but it's my story. And if you want to criticize me for it, you may. I will never, ever try to justify any of my bad decisions. But all the research I've done around figuring out how my life ended up this way, reading books like The Mountain Is You and The Body Keeps the Score and Power, these books have been profoundly helpful in me being able to sort of look inside my head and analyze myself and come to terms with some of my decisions. I get some criticism from the perennially, the let's always be positive people. Like, why are you, why are you sharing bad things? Because most of the population walks around with a bucket of bad things. We all deal with them differently. And I deal with them by sharing them. From Roy dropping me off on May 1st and me going up to the ER until the fall, winter of 2017. We split up, it's over, but we stay in contact. We still see one another once in a while. We still profess feelings for one another. He has a new relationship. She knows nothing of me or that Roy even ever had a girlfriend named Barb. I think, I don't know what he ever did or didn't tell her, but I'm confused as to why he would so want a relationship that he'd be willing to lie to do it when he never lied with me because I believed him. I believed him when he said he was honest. I believed him and I realize now (laughs) that his version of honesty is what he's telling somebody at that time. It's true to him. He's telling the story he wants people to believe, so it must be true. And I say that knowing that in my life, I have lied. I'm not saying he's the bad person and I'm not. We share it, but we also share the hurt and the pain as well. In the thousand tiny steps to Molly's death, my situation with Roy after her death plays a big role in in how I have come to see with clarity the steps that led my life to disarray and ruin in many ways, and how I was so distracted and vulnerable that I was willing to let other people like Robin and Doug 
come into my life and pull me in their directions and add their dysfunction to it as well. Yay. You can see why I'm a little touchy about friends now. I hope that this made sense. I hope that my rambliness wasn't too hard to follow. I hope that like me on this beautiful April 13th, you were able to get outside and enjoy the nice weather. At least it's nice here in Concord. I'm going to go outside and play for a bit. I hope that you're being good to yourself. I'm really, really practicing self-care now because I realize how important it is. I hope that you're being good to other people. There are those that might say me being dishonest in a podcast is me not being good to other people. I am taking care of myself right now. I am. And I am trying to do it in the best way that I can so that I don't hurt those involved. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.